Hey, Dog Speak Geeks. Do you ever feel frustrated? Well, your dog does. Frustration occurs when an animal is interrupted in reaching their goals. Unfortunately, this occurs all too often in the modern world when a dog's goals do not align with those of their human companion. This can be a source of distress for both you and your dog, but it can also lead to the development of problem behaviors and can damage the relationship that you have with your dog. But we have answers for you. Join us for a two-day in-person seminar October 5th and 6th with instruction by Daniel Shaw. Daniel Shaw is an animal behaviorist with a background in animal behavior, psychology, and neuroscience. He will be talking about what frustration is and how it can be identified, the difficulty of conventional approaches in resolving frustration, what influences the value of rewards, as well as supporting frustrated dogs and building frustration tolerance. You can buy early bird tickets now until August the 5th, and be sure that you join us for our pre-seminar social Friday evening where you can meet Daniel and the Dog Speak team. We look forward to seeing you October 5th and 6th in Nashville, Tennessee for the Neuroscience of Resolving Frustration in Dogs seminar. Hey, Dog Speak Geeks. You're going to love today's episode with Dr. Kathy Murphy. I had such a good time recording this. Be sure you go through the show notes and find all of her contact information. She has a lot of free content on her Facebook page. You are going to want to follow her. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hey guys, welcome to Dog Speak. So glad you guys are joining us today. I am super excited and been waiting for this. I have Dr. Kathy Murphy today. Dr. Murphy, thank you for joining me. You're very welcome. Can you introduce yourself? I have talked about you on our podcast several times, so people are probably what? familiar with you, but go ahead and uh, introduce yourself if you don't mind. Uh, so I am a veterinary surgeon. Uh, you might guess that I'm from the UK, um, and I worked in mixed clinical practice for quite a few years, but I've always had an interest in the brain, and clinically that played out in an interest in um behavior but actually predominantly anesthesia and analgesia so I was particularly interested in how we can manipulate cognition with kind of pharmaceutical interactions in fact I was just mesmerized by that concept um so I kind of started my long-winded training at being a, a veterinary anesthetist, but I was always interested in animal behavior, even when I was a kid. So I did things like I worked for the Rottweiler Welfare Association alongside my main job um, and helping them rehabilitating naughty, quote unquote, Rottweilers, mostly adolescent boys. <laughs> so three or four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I guess I've had a kind of unusual career path. It hasn't followed, um, a sort of documented career path, but it's made sense to me because it just is all centered around my interest of the brain and what it does and what it doesn't do and what we know about it and what it doesn't know, what we don't know about it. 
So now I'm the director of Barking Brains. So if anyone wants to find my content, they can go to Facebook and find it on Barking Brains. And I'm also chief scientific officer for a company called Behaviour Vets. Um, so you can go to the Behaviour Vets. That's without a U because you Americans don't spell behaviour <laughs> with a U, which is very confusing. Um, so, yeah, you can find my content, particularly my webinars and paid for content is all through Behaviour Vets. So um, you can go to their website, etc. But, yeah, now... I guess I spend my time um, somewhere in the middle of that. I did a PhD in behavioral neuroscience and I spend my time kind of translating really difficult to digest neuroscience concepts and papers, difficult to digest partly because we like to make them difficult by writing them with lots of long words. So I sort of translate those principles into something that's much more practical for um, our everyday pet owners and for trainers and behaviorists and veterinary surgeons that are interested in behavior. I tell you, I have, I've been doing this for 26 years. And when I started, it was, you know, let's be the dominant one. Let's be the, you know, you got to be the alpha, blah, blah, blah. And for years, I was, I was interested in psychology anyway, but for years I was like, I want to know what the brain is doing with these dogs because I found myself kind of going to that, going, what's happening there in order to try to help with what's happening with the external. Sorry, I should just say in case viewers can hear it, but that is Albie. And Albie is a 10-year-old Weimaraner who's suddenly having an attack of the zoomies at a really inappropriate time. Uh, you know what? It's a dog podcast. So they, they deal with it. I mean, they deal with Brittany and going on tangents and they're used to it. We're good. Just ignore all the strange groaning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I was so excited when I started finding that, that there was more coming out, uh, about just the neural, you know, the neuroscience part of things with dogs. And, and I actually found you the first time with beyond the operant. And, um, yeah, and I, and of course just fell in love with Kim Brophy and had her on and, and gone through the legs. And now you've had my head just spinning for the last like few months because I've been doing a lot of your, uh, webinars. I've done the, the, the brain and development through the stages. Excellent. My brain has just broken, but at the same time, it was like, I was so excited to finally have that. And for us to to see that it's coming out and that the trainers are looking more at what's happening deeper than just this external behavior that everybody sees and and is irritating. So yeah, so the and the adolescent phase is the most challenging phase um, that be. I'm finding. Yeah, it can be um, definitely. I think some people really struggle with it, and some dogs really struggle with it. Um, I think particularly if we come at the adolescent phase from the more traditional changing behavior lens, then it becomes quite frustrating. Um, and mm-hmm. I can maybe go on to explain why changing behavior during adolescence is not the most efficient way to change behavior. Um, and Yes, and I do want you to go on that because I think it's important that people truly understand a little bit more that our listeners understand more that there's more to it that their their dog is not choosing to be an asshole they're not choosing to have those middle fingers come up I mean and we've all been through it yeah we've all had that moment right I mean my mother had a few choice words for me as a teenager yeah I mean 
you know, so can you explain a little bit why it's so challenging? Yeah, I mean, actually, to kind of channel Kim Brophy for a little bit, ethologically, when you look at brain development and what the different stages and phases are, uh, kind of what their priorities are, when the dog is a puppy, the priority in terms of brain development is really learning the essentials about the world around them, but from a protected standpoint. So they would be protected by the mother, they would be protected by the other adults or adolescents within their grouping. Um, And it wouldn't be the case that puppies would be expected to explore the world on their own. Um, And that's pretty much throughout the mammalian species. it doesn't make sense for them to explore the world on their own at that stage because they don't have the tools or the skill set to be able to keep themselves safe. And also, if they did have to do that themselves, it would mean that their brain would have to prioritise threat assessment and being hypervigilant for threat assessment, when actually their brain needs to put all of its energy into exploring the world around it, making those connections, working out what's joined up with what and if I do this what happens here so puppyhood is really just about safely exploring and a good puppyhood is about feeling safe and secure so that you can try things out by the time you get to adolescence that's the time when you're physically starting to look fully grown Um, and I think that's a difficulty for us with our pets because we automatically start treating them as though they're fully grown and expecting them to behave as if they're fully grown. But their brains are still puppy brains, very much still puppy brains. But adolescence is all about throwing yourself out there and about the fact that very soon you're going to have to be an individual autonomous being that is going to be fully responsible for your own decisions. And, you know, it rings bells with humans as much as anything else. But it's the same for our our animal friends, too, um, particularly if we stick with um, mammals. So in terms of brain development, everything about the brain, the way the neurons are developing and the way that stress hormones are are playing out at that particular stage in development is about throwing the dog into its environment. So that's why, you know, as adolescent children, you get a higher propensity for risk taking. So you get kind of dabbling in substances like drink and alcohol, doing things that are a bit naughty, pushing the boundaries, arguing back. Why? Because you're establishing yourself as an autonomous being and you're essentially finding finding out who you are and finding out, you know, how you go about controlling your life and and how you go about becoming independent, that kind of um, growth to independence. For our puppies, that usually includes things like making bad decisions, like running away because you're really excited. And then finding that you're too far away to find your way back safely without panicking. Or, you know, I've heard of people's adolescent puppies hurling themselves off a cliff because they just kept running. Um, Or, you know, kind of the same sort of risk-taking behaviour or jumping up and grabbing hold of your arm and ragging it, which, you know, okay, some puppies do that also, but they usually grow out of in puppyhood. But you see a kind of resurgence of those types of behaviours, those kind of risky, pushing the boundaries kind of behaviours. And that's not to say that it's anything conscious in terms of I will push the boundaries because I don't believe that that's what's going on during adolescence. I don't believe that's what's going on in human brains during adolescence either. And I think, you know, anyone who's 
experienced adolescence knows it doesn't feel like that when you're arguing back you're not arguing back to push the boundaries you're arguing back because they're wrong and they need that's right yeah exactly (laughs) so that's to do with the way your brain is wired it's not gonna second guess things it's not gonna be cautious in its approach to situations it's gonna hurl you into situations and make sure that you try out different coping strategies And if one doesn't work, you're going to switch to the other one. But, you know, you're going to make it work quickly because we've only got a limited amount of time to get you through to being an adult brain where you're really going to have to make sensible decisions about life. And, you know, like with everything, I think although in animal training we're obsessed with reinforcement learning, this idea that the brain learns through reward or punishment, which, by the way, is only a very small way of how the brain learns the brain learns through lots of other ways other than reward or punishment but because we're obsessed with that I think in adolescence it's very easy then to start concentrating on we must do more of that we must do more reward or punishment based training so if you're a reward based trainer that means I must train more because I'm not going to change my methods so I need to increase the intensity of training if you think back to being a human adolescence if you're arguing with your parents and that just increases the frequency with which they teach you how things are in the world and tell you about how things are in the world that doesn't go so well no um those choice words my mother gave me yeah because you know we know best yes (laughs) yep yep Um, absolutely or if you're somewhere in the middle with the balance training you're probably going to err more towards the punishment style even if it's not um direct uh, punishment but even if it's kind of you know removal of privilege etc etc um you're probably going to earn more towards that because that's our natural human inclination is to control behavior and adolescent behavior can look erratic and if you're um a reward-based trainer or reward-based owner i should say i think trainers usually are fairly consistent um but if you're a reward-based owner and things aren't working, you're much more likely to switch to more aversive methods or punishment-based methods during adolescence. We know that's true from surveying owners, that that's usually the life stage that they make the switch, but it actually makes perfect sense when you look at what's going on during that period of time. And the unfortunate thing is that actually, if you understand what's going on at the biological level, you realise that not that you should stop training during adolescence, that's definitely not the case, but that actually a lot of the reward or punishment-based training during that period of time becomes less effective, whilst the brain is also firing at a rate of knots to produce this behaviour that is a higher risk-taking behaviour, more excitatory, more um, erratic, with more emotional instability because of the the development of the brain. So, yeah, I think it's a really fascinating life stage for brain development. And I would say that it's very easy to get things wrong unless you focus on the brain development rather than the behaviour. Because if you just focus on the behaviour, you just say they're naughty, and then that leads you down the whole route of wanting to control their behaviour, wanting to train them to do better. Um, And actually, it's probably the last thing that their brains need. Yeah, because I mean, 
I, and I think when I start thinking about like kind of humans of what we deal with when we have a dog and they're a puppy and they don't want to leave our side and they're looking at us for everything and it's just, we're feeling really good and they're, you know, they're responding to everything. And then all of a sudden they hit this stage. And I think that a lot of humans just take it personal. And, and that's a lot of times when they're switching. And I know we do lose some puppy clients in adolescence for sending off to board and train and sending off to do more aversives. And so we're really trying hard now as a company to really focus on helping people to understand where that dog is coming from. And and I like to say that, you know, that bridge between that decision-making and that emotional part of the brain, it was a nice bridge in puppyhood, but then slats just started falling out. Yeah. And (laughs) it just wasn't quite making it there. Yeah. So just got to be patient while we're rebuilding the bridge. Um, you know, I know that for me, um, Rottweilers, that was my breed. And I did 12 years in search and rescue and, and search and recovery. And I remember my last Roddy, uh, I lost her um, actually a year ago this month. And I, as soon as I got her eight weeks and we started, we probably hit three seminars in just like three or four weeks. And I was taking her places. She was with my other Roddy. I had started her on human remains. I'm like, you've got to certify it a year because my other dog's going to, you know, retire. And then now looking back, I'm like, wow, I, now I know why I thought she had some, some things not firing right in the brain as an adult, because I was like, wow, what, what I, I threw at her and what I, I forced her brain to take in in such a short period of time. And and of course I I kick myself for that now, but like you, I got a puppy that I am training and raising completely different. Yeah. 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 I, I, I definitely, um, I understand what you're going through (laughs) because we we only do what we think is right. And I think, you know, not only historically have we always thought that once they look adult, they should be able to deal with adult stuff, we still do that with our human adolescents. We still treat teenagers as if they should be mini adults and they're not mini adults. In fact, a teenager's brain isn't really fully developed until at least the age of 24. And for some, it's later. So if you think when our teenagers are six foot at the age of 16 and we're saying to them, come on, act like a man or act like a woman or act like a grown up, it's kind of crazy. They are still a little kid, but they're in a big, goofy body. Um, And really, we should be relating to them um, as if they still have that inability to. So one of the things is controlling behavior. So maybe we should get down to some of the neurobiology. So this is one of the, the things that's really heavily written about in the human adolescent literature because um, it, it's associated with some of the adolescent behavioral problems that you see. So we get our behavioral control through the front part of our brain called the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex to be specific. Um, And that's the part of the brain that sits on the forehead or just underneath the forehead. And um, it's responsible for decision-making, for integrating lots of complicated information about how we think about a situation, how we feel about a situation, and what's going on, what other um, complexities or layers there are to the context and then taking all of that information and making a decision about 
how to behave and ensuring that that decision about how to behave is both appropriate, so we pick an appropriate behaviour, but that it's also proportional. And remember that appropriate is context specific because what's appropriate for dog behaviour in my house might be different from what's appropriate for dog behaviour in your house. So our dogs are also learning about that and so are our human teenagers they're also learning about what's appropriate in this household versus my best mate's household versus school versus whatever the football ground or etc (laughs) etc so it's that prefrontal cortex that integrates all of that that information and then helps us to make a decision that's appropriate and proportional The difficulty is that even though adolescents look grown up and their brain has undergone the puppy development, the prefrontal cortex really is very underdeveloped compared to the rest of the brain because it's the last part of the brain to develop and it develops towards the end of adolescence. So in a human that would be 22, 23, 24 years old. In a dog, we don't know exactly when that would be. We arguably say adolescence is about six months to 18 months. I think adolescence isn't one thing. Adolescence is a whole bunch of different things. And I certainly think that there are breeds that don't go through some stages of adolescence until much, much later, probably more like three years, um, arguably four years. Probably never. but yeah, it's much, much later than, than well, if we ever did think about it, then we might think that that happens. So their ability to make decisions that are appropriate and proportional isn't fully developed. So it is not at all logical that they would make decisions that are proportional and appropriate. Like that just isn't going to happen because they don't have the bandwidth for it. The only way they're going to do that is if they don't ever have to make any decisions that are complex. So if they never have to make any decisions for themselves, you would never notice that they don't have that ability. But for most of our dogs, particularly sports dogs, that's when we're really ramping up their training. So they're really having to absorb a lot of information and be able to do that kind of complex calculation. So the fact that their prefrontal cortex doesn't develop until later in adolescence means that we are usually putting a lot on them. And partly that's because other parts of their brain have developed really well during puppyhood. So it's not just the case that their brain is developing in a kind of linear line so that they get more and more intelligent and more and more able to process decisions, etc. as they get older. But what's happening in the puppy brain is the areas that aren't the prefrontal cortex and specifically the areas that are underneath the cortex are developing really well. But because the prefrontal cortex isn't, you've got an imbalance because now the rest of the brain is able to take in a lot of information and it's able to process a lot of information, but there's no higher cognitive area to be able to integrate that and make a decision about it. So what you see behaviorally is that puppies are better able to make appropriate and proportional decisions based on what behavior they should do in a particular set of circumstances, But as they go into adolescence, they lose that ability because essentially the parts of the brain underneath the cortex continue to develop, but the prefrontal cortex is getting relatively less developed. The gap between the two, I'm using my hands now for anyone on the podcast, (laughs) helping you because it's a podcast. Um, 
But the gap of development between those areas underneath the cortex and the cortex is getting bigger and bigger throughout adolescence. And it only starts to narrow towards the end of adolescence. So that's one of the reasons why you can have a puppy who behaves perfectly, who seems to be coming along really well in dog sports or whatever it is that you're doing with them. And then during adolescence, that starts to look really erratic and you start thinking, God, it's almost like I haven't trained a sit before or they can't do a downstay, whereas they could in puppyhood. Well, that is potentially because their brains literally don't have that capacity anymore. They're now, the brain that you're training now is different from the brain that you were training during puppyhood. And I think unless you understand that, you get quite frustrated and you potentially put too much expectation on them that, hey, you could do this before, you should be able to do this now. Whereas now, if they could do, I'm using downstairs as an example just because it's such a dramatic behaviour. But if they could do like 30 seconds of downstay as a puppy, now if they can do five seconds of downstay, that should be a really big reward. You know, if you're using reward to reinforce that behaviour, then the reward needs to be proportional to how amazingly hard that was. And that was much harder than it was during puppyhood. But what do we do? We go, what? You can't even do a minute? Or, right? you know, you, you have to do 30 seconds. I'm not going to reward you for that. <laughs> exactly. You're exactly right. And and it's just, it really is amazing. And I am so glad that my brain has been changing uh, for this whole process because, I mean, again, my Roddy ended up having problems of getting into a heavy um, area of, of scent, but having a hard time finding the strongest odor. So when we worked old cemeteries and things of that, she could not make a decision on where the strongest odor was. Now it makes sense Yeah, that she just literally, but as a puppy, I mean, she was on it. She was, you know, just nailing it. Yeah, And that, and because I did push her more, I think that I really set her up to not be as good of a search dog as she could have been because I think I did push it really hard. And I think I see a lot of people doing that. And, and especially, you know, when they're doing private lessons with us, we can really help them understand the brain group classes. People start early with their puppies are doing great. And then they come into our classes and the dog's adolescent. And especially if they're intact, I mean, it's just, they just fall apart. The humans fall apart. And then of course they're like, well, this isn't working. We got to go do something else or I'm going to go send them off. And, you know, I'm like, look, boys and balls equal, not able to function. I mean, that's the first thing. I mean, that's the same in any species. I I know that's what I'm like. I'm like, sorry, but it makes your brain go kooky. It does. Right. Boys get stupid when they start getting a little hair on their testicles. Um, and I mean, it really is. I, I think that we do know more about, you know, children and and understanding what they're going through. And and we ended up getting our niece at like 13 years old and she came to live with us and I never wanted kids. Uh, so I was like, OK, only thing I know how to do is dog. So I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to treat her like a dog. I'm going to help her learn how to make choices. We're not going to be screaming and yelling. We're going to, and you know, and she's in, in university now and more mature than me. Um, still only, you know, she'll be 19. Um, you know, but she's, she's learned how to make those decisions. And, and she, I remember her going through some risk taking where um, I, you know, called her one day doing the after school meeting on another part of a ground to fight and that's not her at all. 
And my brain broke. I'm like, I, what am I doing wrong? Oh my goodness. You know, oh, is she going to grow up to be like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but now looking back, because I've been really, um, getting that continuing education and, and really soaking it up because I think it is important if we understand that we can change the way that we are interacting with those dogs and, and being just a little more patient and giving everybody some grace and, and just breathe a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I think patience during adolescence is really what we're there for. And it's hard if you get a dog when it is an adolescent, which is quite Mm -hmm. likely if you get a rescue dog, because a lot of them are given up during adolescence for all the reasons we've been talking about. But if you've had had the dog since a puppy, you can really put in all the groundwork during puppyhood and then just sit tight during adolescence. And it'll all be there when you get through adolescence. Um, And, you know, it's not going to disappear. You know, Zebedee had the perfect spin on a sixpence recall until he hit adolescence. And then he acted like he was deaf. (laughs) Um, and more importantly birds were far more exciting than the whistle now so he would disappear off so now I spotted that very quickly because I was looking for it's one of the classic signs that you're reaching adolescence is I'm now brave enough to disappear yep Um, (laughs) he actually only did it once before I started thinking okay so I'm gonna have to be really careful where I take him so now comes the not increased recall training because his recall is perfect there's nothing wrong with his recall it's more about supporting his brain so that there are less distractions so he can go off the lead if we go to a dog park that's um fenced in I don't know what you call them in the states but we have like places that you can hire that's just for you so you hire them for like an hour or whatever and you've just got you and your dogs in there and it's got a secure fence around it um so you don't have to deal with other people's dogs which generally just mess everything up (laughs) Uh, so yeah he can go off the lead if he's in an area like that he can go off the lead if he's at the beach because I've got a huge visual range at the beach so that helps Uh, he couldn't go off um during uh when he was at the woods or anywhere like that because it wouldn't be very far that he would get before I would lose sight of him and then that can then end in a situation where he's then too inexperienced and too puppyish to be able to find his way back to me without getting into trouble. Um, and then he can end up lost. And I mean, he also had a tracker put on him and some bells yeah. and all that. He's a German <laughs> short head pointer. What can I say? They're not known for staying close. But, you know, that's where the long line became my friend. And it's not that he yes. didn't go off lead during adolescence. That's not the case at all. It's that I would always have the backup plan of on the long line, off the long line for a short bit, back on the long line during that phase of adolescence. He's now, he's not out of adolescence, but he's out of the recall issue. His recall's back to being on a sixpence now. Don't ask me why. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> adolescence doesn't make any sense. Like the birds are still there, but he's just decided that the whistle's more exciting than birds at the moment um so yeah rather than intensively training him for recall there's no advantage to that he has the conditioning for recall his recall is brilliant what he has also is an adolescent brain that is reprioritizing the information that's coming in and birds are a massive priority and movement is a massive priority and the whistle well let's not bother processing that sound we'll just forget that so you know when 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 I say, you know, he acted like he was deaf, at times I think he genuinely was deaf, as in his brain was not prioritising auditory stimuli. 
Why? Because he was developing what he's been bred for, which is bird hunting, which is visual. It's not auditory. So there's no reason for his brain to be processing auditory signals. They don't have any relevance to that skill that he's practicing at that period of his life. The fact that that skill is inconvenient for me is my problem because I bought a German short hair pointer. You know, I still... <laughs> Amen to that. More yeah. people would listen to that. Don't get pissed at the dog. That is what you chose. Yeah, exactly. So you have to recognize that his brain has to go through that development phase. You can't, you know, people talk about suppressing it, etc. Sure, you can control the arse end of it. Excuse my swearing, but you, oh, can honey, don't it. you worry about around here. That's gonna have fallout. What you, what I think you're better to do is to accept that that's part of his brain development and work out how he can develop that part of his brain in a safe way and so that he can then come back to recall is more important than birds which thankfully he has done um but yeah I mean to go to send them off for board and train um, there are some really good board and trainers um and if you get a really good board and trainer then that's fantastic but it, it also brings with it the risk that you have no idea what methods they're using on your dog and I don't think I've I, your your listeners might correct me, but I don't think I've ever met a board and trainer who can send back a perfectly trained dog within a week that uses entirely kind methods. Um, no. no, no way. It's just unrealistic. And it's also weird. Like when you know what's going on in the dog's brain, you think, well, if it's perfectly behaved, that means it's abnormal. Because, mm-hmm. you know, a dog at that life stage should not be perfectly behaved because behavior is like perfectly behaved is what we create as a construct, as a set of rules. But their brain has to develop and be able to, you know, work out coping strategies for living in that environment. And that isn't logical that they would do that during adolescence. So if anyone has a perfectly behaved dog during that period of time, I'm always a little bit suspicious. And you will, you know, everything's on a spectrum. So you will get some really laid back dogs. You'll definitely get some really experienced owners with relatively laid back dogs that go through adolescence and don't notice any bumps in the road because they've already subconsciously set the dog up for allowing it to find its own way, develop its own coping strategies, try things out, trial and error, all of those things. So they wouldn't necessarily notice that there was any issues. But, you know, other factors can be at play and you can find people who are almost broken during adolescence and go from loving their little puppy to wanting to rehome it or, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, finding it really difficult to live with them. Yes, yes. And, you know, when you are looking at the size of the brain, the smaller size of the brain, is it going to develop faster than the larger portion? Yeah, so it's really tricky to give accurate information in dogs because we're still at the beginning of our journey scientifically of understanding what's going on with the dog's brain. And to put it bluntly, in order to get answers to those questions we would have to do invasive experiments that wouldn't be very ethical which we've done in a lot of other species in the laboratory but which we wouldn't be wanting to do with our pets but we do know a few things we know that regardless of the size of the brain so regardless of the breed um that the hind brain develops first. So all of the essential functions like respiratory function, heart rate function, anything that keeps you alive is very well developed quite quickly. 
Then you get all the subcortical areas, the areas that, you know, process emotion and um, switch between different behavioral strategies and all of those sorts of um, uh, pain processing is another one. So all of those sorts of areas, learning and memory, develop more quickly than the cortical structures. And the cortex or the surface of the brain is the one where all the complex integration happens. And the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is the most complex. So if you like, if you look at a brain from the back to front, the back develops more quickly. And the last thing to develop is always the front part of the brain, regardless of what breed breed it is. And that has been shown in dogs um, in experiments. Um, In terms of how quickly they mature, anecdotally, um, it seems that the smaller breeds mature more quickly than the larger breeds. And some people talk about some of the giant breeds not really maturing until they become aged. It's like they right. never really get much time in adulthood because they're either an adolescent or they're, an, um, you know, a senior. Um, but in terms of true scientific backup from that, we don't necessarily have any that's directly related to pet dogs. But it does make sense biologically, because in biology, the smaller brains do mature much more quickly than the larger brains. Um, So that wouldn't be a crazy idea. And I think, you know, anecdotal evidence doesn't mean it's not evidence. It just means that you have to think about, you know, is it logical? How would we test it? All of those sorts of things. But we do have a huge amount of anecdotal evidence that suggests that the smaller breeds mature more quickly than big breeds. And that there may be specific breeds where it's either accelerated or decelerated. Um, And partly that could be to do with what behaviours we're breeding them for. Because remember that our domestic dogs are essentially infantilised in that we breed them for behaviours and looks that are um, infant-like. So, you know, we like the cute squashed faces, for instance. We like the um, calm, playful behaviours that they would have during puppyhood. We don't um, necessarily, I'm making broad sweeping statements here while everyone's screaming at the radio or whatever they're listening to. People don't listen to the radio anymore, do they? What am I on about? Whilst they're screaming at their MP3 player or whatever. Um, But yeah, so, you know, it sort of depends on what we're breeding them for. And generally speaking, pet people will be looking for that playful, happy-go-lucky type behavioural profile that's associated with puppyhood. Um, and it's only really the, the perhaps the people that are interested in working dogs that would be looking for that aloof adult, I'll make my own decisions, thank you very much, behaviour. Not always. Again, it's huge generalisation. But um, that therefore makes sense that that has an effect on how those brains develop because selection is about selecting for particular brain anatomy and brain physiology that give us that outcome that give us that playful puppyish behavior or that give us that squashed cute face whatever it is that we're looking for i have a small dog now and i roddies have been my breed and this is the first time i've been without one in 20 years because oh. i knew i just i didn't have the energy to put into the roddy and i, I no longer work yeah so i don't work in search and rescue or recovery anymore right now i might go back um, but he's a smaller guy. He's hitting 11 months. Um, he too had a beautiful recall yesterday. I'm out in the yard. I had him out with me, uh, Halloween decorations. It's spooky season here. And, um, and he 
runs, you know, to the next door neighbors. And typically he has a beautiful turn on a dime. And yesterday was the first time he just said, nah. <laughs> and I just thought, all right. So I went and got him and we went back in the house. I was like, I'm just hoping because he's little. I'm like, come on, just, can we just stop it at like 12, 13 months? Yeah, come on, can come on we can do this. Can we just please? So let's just cross our fingers um, and hope that we get there because whew, this adolescence, I've forgotten what it was like to have a puppy. Yeah, and I think that's oh it. You, you have to realize that once you start seeing those behaviors that are indicative of, you know, more erratic brain activity, that you've just got to be thinking, okay, I now can't rely on my recall, whereas you might have done before. So you might have taken right. places where, you know, you need a really good recall. You can't rely on that just now. But it doesn't mean you won't be able to. It just means for a short period of time. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, setting them up for success to make sure that it's not not dangerous. But, you, yeah, I mean, their brains, their brains do kooky things during adolescence. And one of the other things that happens as well as kind of different brain areas developing at different rates is you have excitatory neurons in the brain and you have inhibitory neurons in the brain and the excitatory excitatory neurons create activity and excitement and the inhibitory neurons dampen down excitement and activity those inhibitory neurons don't actually fully mature until the end of adolescence so again you've got this disparity because during puppyhood both are developing inhibitory and excitatory but as you get further through puppyhood the um excitatory neurons are developing really well they're kind of you know developing at a really good fast rate but the inhibitory neuron development is much slower so as you get to the end of puppyhood you've got a bigger gap then between the functionality of the excitatory neurons and the inhibitory neurons and during adolescence you've got the least inhibitory neurons in terms of ratio that you have at any other time of development and those inhibitory neurons are maturing during adolescence but they don't fully mature until the end of adolescence so that means Behavior is essentially an expression of the balance between excitation and inhibition, because that's all that neurons can do. They can either be excited or inhibited. They can't do anything else. So the, the specific balance of that excitation and inhibition and the specific pattern of the balance of excitation and inhibition across the different brain areas is what gives us the signature that creates a particular behavior. So as soon as you mess up the ratio of excitation and inhibition, you're going to get behavior that doesn't look appropriate or proportional because it can't. They can't generate appropriate and proportional behavior if they've got a ratio that is wonky. So again, some dogs can compensate for that and some dogs can't. Some dogs are better well able to compensate for that and some dogs aren't. And some dogs will be more badly affected by that depending on what their what we call behavioral phenotype is, which just means, you know, what the behavior of the breed is, what the behavior of that particular line within the breed is. So what's their kind of genetic makeup? 
And then on top of that, what was their early life experience and how did that interact with their genetic makeup? So what we call epigenetics. So each dog, as it gets to adolescence, is an individual. um, And some of those dogs then have a brain in adolescence where they can't get that balance very easily. So their, their brains aren't necessarily capable of producing in all circumstances that proportional and appropriate behavior. Sorry, that's Albie again. He has laryngeal paralysis in case you're wondering what's happening. He's <laughs> just clearing his throat. Um, Albie, you're really far too much of this podcast at this point. No, I love it. <laughs> He's staring back at me with a goofy look in his green pajamas. Um, oh, that's so cute. Uh, so yeah, so you need that balance and some dogs really don't have that balance to pick the appropriate and proportional behavior. And then if their prefrontal cortex isn't developed on top of that, they can't override that behavior because the prefrontal cortex could potentially override any kinks and, you know, kind of make a better decision on top of that. But if they don't have that either, then they're still developing the ability to kind of override that. So if you imagine what that's like, you can now understand why human adolescents get so frustrated because they are constantly being told to behave in a way that their brain won't let them behave in. They don't have that level of control over their behavior. They don't understand why they lash out. They don't understand why they do stupid things um, because that's what their brain's doing. And it's exactly the same with our dogs. It makes no sense at that time to really increase the intensity of training or to shift to aversives to to get a much stronger, um, a, a much stronger contrast, because yes, it might be effective, the same as it would be effective with a human adolescent, but you're not actually supporting the development of the brain, and you're creating more confrontation, which if it doesn't come out at the time, might come out later. And that's my worry, I guess, with the risk of board and train at that time, if it's taken solely for the reason that we want a dog back in a couple of weeks that doesn't do this behavior because all you're really doing is using really strong interventions to suppress any behavior. But then that brain development still needs to happen at some point down the line. That is still going to come out in some way as, as a a kind of side effect, if you like, I believe, Um, granted we haven't proven that in dogs, but we do have evidence of that in in humans and we do also have well we have um survey research data showing that the highest um that the most likely time for somebody to give up their pet is during adolescence so that's when most of the behavior problems are being exhibited and that for a lot of aggression cases that 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 started in adolescence even if they didn't get to the point where it was a real problem until later they started to see it being exhibited during adolescence and that is naturally going to happen if you're trying to control behavior during that phase when they need to be able to express behavior and need to be able to be sounds anthropomorphic but they need to be able to not be made wrong for the fact that they don't have perfect control over everything they do so you know sometimes you've got to let things go Yes, absolutely. And and I really learned that with my guys that I took him a lot of places when I first got him. And then I could tell his he was starting to kick into where it wasn't as much fun. And I was like, okay, we just made your world a little bit smaller. 
He hasn't gone as much, but we can really see the difference of when something with my Roddy's, they would at least give me a little growl before a bark. They didn't need to, to explode. Yeah. This guy will explode so bad. Like he will make you pee your pants at least three times a day. And it's like, you could tell he's just not able. He's like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I can't stop. Yeah. And it's just, I feel so bad for him. Um, but I'm also like, oh my God, I need you to shut up. Yeah. Um, I'm not used to having a barker. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my Rottweilers are so easy. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Uh, they really are. People don't realize how wonderful they are. Um, I'm kicking myself maybe for not, now he does have 5% Rottweiler in him, but he's only, he's only like 15 pounds. Um, let's talk, can we, let's, can we talk trauma just for a second during adolescence? And I have, because I've had a couple of clients like this, but I have one client whose dog in adolescence actually had um, hit the windshield in a car um, on a stoppage. And and then another time was got his head closed in a door. <laughs> poor, this poor dog, right? Um, during adolescence, what do you, what would we normally see as results? Because I know what I'm seeing is, as far as being one of my clients, but what do you, what would we normally see possibly? Just some ideas. How cute that baby is right there, y'all. I get to see the precious. <laughs> He's <laughs> really. Just, I just see a little bit of the nose off. coming in. You're really needy <laughs> right now, aren't you? He's like, it's called dog speak. Can I come in here and say some things, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of trauma could we see in those moments uh, of a dog who had those yeah, issues? So the other thing I guess we haven't really talked about is coping strategies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our ability to adapt to the world around us is about learning healthy coping strategies and learning what works for us as an individual and what works for us within the environment that we are. And those coping strategies are starting to be tried out in puppyhood. So, you know, like the difference between a puppy at a puppy class that hides under the chair versus one that is barking and straining at the end of the lead potentially both of those puppies are stressed, potentially by an equal amount. Um, so that it's a very similar cause, but they're both trying different coping strategies for how to deal with that. Um, and the puppies basically learn during puppyhood which coping strategies are successful. And I'm a big proponent for teaching puppies that withdraw and think is a healthy coping strategy. And I think because we have this approach to puppyhood that it should all be about socialization, that puts the onus on activities that take the dog into situations where there are other dogs, other people, there are cars, like lots going on. Um, and one of the problems that can occur is that dogs basically have their coping strategies overwhelmed. They're testing out what works and what they want is to get out of that situation because it's too much. It's like the equivalent of flooding. Do you use that term flooding? Yes, we do. Yep. Yeah. So it's like the equivalent of flooding and they can't get out of it, right? Because they're on the end of a lead. They're a puppy, so mm -hmm. they can't run off on their own. Like they're not going to get very far so they have to try coping strategies and sometimes if they sit quietly then the owner's response is come on come on come and come and introduce yourself to these puppies you can play with them come on come on come on and it's just completely overwhelming their coping strategies and potentially mm -hmm. even as early as puppyhood you can start to see what I would term unhealthy coping strategies developing so that's the kind of I will be so energetic 
that I'm controlling the situation. So hiding away from this situation didn't work. So the only way I can have some agency or control over this situation, which is essential for well-being, is to be so hyperactive that I'm the one that is bouncing everyone else off the walls and therefore I don't get bounced off the walls. Um, And you see the same thing. There's a huge literature in child psychology about this. So you see the same thing in humans also. Um, During adolescence, what you've got is you've got tested out coping strategies that are now having to mature into behavioral strategies. So those um, strategies that were working, working in inverted commas, because they may not be working completely, but they might be working as much as any strategy is going to work because no one's listening to me about what I actually need in this situation. So whatever it is they've decided that might work, that's going to be their go-to, and they're maturing that during adolescence. Now, if you interrupt that whole process with a major trauma, that's going to have a big effect on their go-to, A, for how they process stress and their level of resilience to processing stress and their experience of recovery from stress, Are they actually going to be supported so that they can recover completely from that stress or are they not going to be? So I don't know, the windshield example, is anyone going to notice that going in the car for them is now a stressor? For instance, it may not be, but is anyone looking to see whether it is? And if it is, is anyone then looking at how they might desensitize that, how they might, you know, Um, be looking to create a nicer environment, a safer environment in the car to do smaller journeys, all of the kind of usual behavior modification stuff. Or are they actually just going to say, you've got to tough it out um, and stay in the car? So they're learning, not consciously, but their bodies are learning about how they recover from physiological stress and trauma. And so largely, whether that turns into something that's successful and healthy is dependent on how they're allowed to deal with it and what support they're given for dealing with it. Um, And like I said, if you have a trauma in adolescence, you're potentially not going to have an appropriate behavioral response. The other thing is that your um, cortisol and adrenaline are produced by a physiological axis in your body between three organs called the HPA axis. So that's your hypothalamus, your pituitary gland, and your adrenal glands. And those three areas of your body produce adrenaline and cortisol. So they're kind of like the stress response, the fight or flight response, or sympathetic nervous system, sympathetic rather than parasympathetic. Albie, come here, come and have a cup <laughs> Albie, come here, come on. Um, his HPA axis is getting a bit active. It's because <laughs> ten, nine minutes to dinner time. Oh, my God. His internal body clock. Um, Bless him. So that HPA axis, the activity increases when you're stressed and it decreases back to a baseline level for when you recover. But with a massive trauma, it takes a long time to reach back down to baseline. You remain stressed for a much longer period of time. And also you're being triggered all the time by things that wouldn't normally trigger you because the HPA activity is so high. But you need to be able to get back down to baseline. And the the, um, more directly you do that, the more resilience you'll build in how to be able to get back down to baseline. So 
the aim with the HPA activity is it's going to go up with a stressor and you need to be able to get it back down. But specifically during adolescence, even if it, you're as quick as possible at being able to get that activity back down, it's always going to be at least twice as long as in puppyhood or adulthood. Because during adolescence, you don't have that level of control over that that fight or flight, that stress induction. So any trauma during adolescence is going to take twice as long to recover from. But usually we would have the behavioral approach of, well, you're an adult now because you look like an adult. So I might mm-hmm. have given you time off when you're a puppy because you're, you know, vulnerable, etc. But now you're an adult, you've like, you know, you've experienced stuff. I mean, the, the crashing into the windshield is a bit of an extreme example. But if we take the example of being jumped on by a dog in the dog park, you know, you've mm-hmm. had that before and you've recovered from that perfectly well. So why would you need longer to recover now? Whereas in actual fact, during adolescence, they need twice as long. So that means we need to be putting in the support for them in terms of avoiding situations that will trigger their stress response whilst they're still stressed because then they're never going to get back down to baseline. So we need to set up the environment to avoid any triggers for that period of time, and that needs to be twice as long as it would take usually during adolescence. So putting in lots of conditioning exercises, so resilience conditioning exercises, things like scatter feeding, snuffle mats, scent work, you know, things that are more meditative rather than – I mean – it's not all for all dogs. Some dogs actually need, you know, like bull breeds quite classically, if they need to reduce their stress, they need to bite something and rag something and they can't really relax unless they do that. So it's specific for each individual. You need to learn what's going to help your individual dog de-stress. But it's a really good thing to be looking out for during puppyhood because you're sure as hell going to need it during adulthood as well. Um, yes. And then if you've got an immediate go to, then you know, wow, something really stressful has just happened. Once I've got over it, then we need to be looking at getting the dog over it. And what activities should I be putting in in the next few days that are going to help that activity of the HPA axis come back down to baseline? Because that's what you're aiming for. What are, and I know we're getting close to him because he's obviously starving over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's never had a meal in his life. <laughs> It's just withering away. Um, with during this during this phase, what is kind of the one thing that you can tell our listeners of? Other than for me, my recommendation is drink a lot of tequila during <laughs> adolescence. That's an unhealthy um, coping strategy, by the way. In case anyone's wondering. <laughs> I feel better. You know, <laughs> I think my dog likes me better. Um, what are what are maybe one or two things that people really need to be aware of during adolescence? We've talked about patience, and yes, patience is is big. Um, what are some of the couple of things that you could just tell people? So patience of what's is, best. Patience is big, and the other thing is patience is passive, right? And that's frustrating for us. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, we like to be active. The other thing is that movement is your friend. If 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 a dog's brain is moving, it's the same as a human's brain. If you're moving, you have access to different states, different brain states, and that's why 
people often talk about going for a run if they're stressed or going to the gym or punching out, you know, like a punch (laughs) bag or whatever it is, because movement helps to reduce the activity of the HPA axis. Now, I'm not suggesting you take your dog for a run every time it's stressed, because remember that we're deciding to do that for the dog and the dog doesn't necessarily have any agency in that. But um, keeping them moving, looking for safe spaces. So for me, the thing that saved me with Zebedee was looking for safe places that he could run because running for him just put him in a much happier place. (laughs) So that was the dog Mm -hmm. parks. I don't know what you call them, but the the spaces that you can hire that are individual. So you don't, you know, you're sniff spot. Yeah. It's kind of what we have here. Sniff spot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're not going to encounter anyone else's dogs. I hate dog parks because I hate other people and other dogs. Um, I'd much (laughs) rather just walk on the beach at three in the morning when I know there's no one there. Um, But it just means that I can then have the brain state of relaxed and not have to be hypervigilant because I don't have to worry about my dog's interactions. Um, But yeah, so be looking for that. I think the other thing is we need to dial back on this obsession with socialising, getting dogs out, experiencing everything. I'm not saying that experiencing the world isn't a good thing, but I am saying we need to shift from the quantity or the frequency that we do that to the quality and just be looking to set things up for quality interactions. So, you know, if you wake up on a morning and your adolescent dog is being an idiot and that's not the time to go and experience something new in the world and take them to the shopping center like it's just not just choose a day when your dog wakes up and he's like hey I'm chill today because there will be those during adolescence too so you've got to be flexible with your training plans and I think during adolescence I, I had a training plan during puppyhood it kind of went off piece during adolescence and I'm not sure what it is now but I at least had several different things that I could go to during a training session because the last thing you want to do is dull all that brain activity by saying this isn't working the downstay that we're doing today isn't working but I'm damn well gonna do it because I know that you can do it and because I know I'm a good enough trainer to make that happen that's the wrong approach just have something else to switch in and then switch back to downstay five minutes later and see whether you know it's any different if it's not switched to downstay another day or another week or whatever right and you don't have to ignore downstay and you might have to go back and troubleshoot it sure but try not to get fixed on a particular um plan because your plan doesn't take account of what's going on in the dog's brain you've got to take account of the fact that the brain you're training on monday is a different brain to that that you're training on Tuesday and that's not the dog's fault that is the way it is the same as your teenager they wake up on Monday and they're all sweetness and light they wake up on Tuesday and they act like the earth is going to end tomorrow absolutely absolutely yeah I always tell people to me it's more important that your dog does a behavior than you getting the behavior yeah because if I I can get a behavior but doesn't mean that the dog is in the right place or it's you know even ethical to get that behavior. Um, but if they're if they're giving it to us, then we know we've got some connectivity happening. Yeah. And um, look for movement behaviors. You know, if if the stay behaviors, if the controlled heel behaviors are not working, it's probably because there's too much erratic brain activity. Mm-hmm. So do something that involves movement that looks messier, but that you're still getting something out of. So you can do the, you know, heel on the move without looking for precision, but you're looking for that drive, that energy, that willingness to engage. 
stage and then you're allowing them still to partake in what you're training them to do and you're saying we can neaten it up later and you're not saying we'll neaten it up in six months you're just saying today is not the day to neaten it up um you know we'll work on that yeah yeah thank you so much i appreciate you so much and you have taught me so much um, and it's all that it's all the information I've been dying to have. Uh, so I love that it's being brought. Where can people find you and find all of your webinars and information? And we will put this in the show notes, but I want to give an opportunity for you to uh, what do you have coming up? So we have Barking Brains Facebook page. Uh, I'm in the very slow process of setting up Barking Brains, the website. <laughs> but It's not there yet. It's hopefully going to be there by the end of the year. But Barking Brains on Facebook. Um, and you can scroll back through. There's tons of free content on there because I post all the podcasts, all the write-ups, um, all of that sort of stuff. So there is a ton of free content. And then um, there are also a lot of webinars that I do through Behaviour Vets. So you can look at the Behaviour Vets website. I do about two webinars a month for them. So there's a lot of content there um, for everything from microbiome to pain to training methods, whatever, and all from a neurobiological angle. So all looking at it through what's happening in the brain. So yeah, if you're nerdy like me, um, when I get done with this and get this posted, I have the second half of the resilience webinar to get through. Yay, that's so, my favorite topic. <laughs> so I, I have been working through it as best I can because um, it's just wonderful. Thank you. I, I really cannot tell you, I've been so excited about this um, as nerdy as I am. And I appreciate you taking the time to to get on here and and talk with us. And I know my listeners are excited and we're excited to hear about this. And so we really appreciate it. And we'll put everything in the show notes. Um, Kathy, thank you. You're very I welcome. Really appreciate it's lovely it. appreciate to meet y'all. you. Yeah, it's lovely to meet you. And everybody, find Dr. Murphy if you're as nerdy as we are. Just embrace it because it's amazing. 